0: The following podcast is for healthcare professionals only. All views expressed belong to our speakers and don't necessarily reflect those of Nestle Health Science. Hello and welcome to Inside Medical Nutrition Podcast, a podcast powered by Nestle Health Science and hosted by me, Dr. Linia Patel. In today's episode, we are exploring a pharmacist's experience with cow's milk allergy. For this episode, I'm delighted to have an expert in the field. Ibrahim Amin, who is the lead practice pharmacist in Greater Manchester. Right, Ibrahim, before we dive in, I want to learn much more about you. So um, tell us a little bit about you. Why did you choose to do pharmacy?
1: Wow. Um, So currently, I'm the lead pharmacist at a large surgery in Greater Manchester, and we provide care for a population of over 50,000 patients. However, I've always been a bit of a—I mean, I don't know if we can recall this or not—but I'm a bit of a chemistry freak, so to speak. You know, so I used to love chemistry when I was um, when I was when I first got my first uh, chemistry set, let's say, at the tender age of about five, and it's always been that since. Um, however, I've got a lot of healthcare professionals in my family, and um, I'm really big into research that kind of stuff. And I, I did actually at some point start off in industry doing a lot of that. Then I realised that I was actually missing the, the patient contact and the clinical aspect of things Um, so that's uh, what's brought me to my current role although I've uh, I've been very fortunate because I've worked in probably all the sectors of pharmacy that are currently available so I've done a bit of hospital uh, community and predominantly general practice um, as well as uh, a little stint in industry so to speak you know
0: Super interesting. I want to dive a little bit deeper. So you said you're a lead practice pharmacist. So tell me, what extra training did you have to do to become um, the the lead of the practice?
1: Uh, so I so I've been very fortunate in the fact that I've always been, um, like I said, more focused on the clinical aspects. Uh, traditionally, um, f- let's say pharmacy education is not. Uh, although things are changing nowadays with regards to um, the way they teach pharmacists, is more from a theoretical background and you know and a lot of science but unlike let's uh let's call it other healthcare professionals like your medics and your nurses there's very very little hands-on so to speak you know although again they have changed things uh, with more recent courses uh, so i was very fortunate that, um when i started off i actually worked with a lot of GPs in uh, what, what I'd call a, um, a walk-in centre anyway so mm-hmm. setting, so to speak, you know, um, and I, uh, I became close to a lot of these GPs and to be completely frank with you, because a lot of the, um, the pharmacists coming to general practice was a push after 2015 when there was this uh, joint venture by with the Royal College of General Practitioners and the um, General Pharmaceutical Council and Royal Pharmaceutical Society to bring pharmacists in. I'm actually one of these who started a lot earlier than that. And it was mainly knocking on doors and trying to prove to to GPs what I could do. So a lot of my training was actually done with the medics and the nurses. So that's where I developed a lot of my clinical skills uh, rather than going the traditional routes where where, uh, these Let's say national programs have brought pharmacists, which, which is great because we have seen now more and more pharmacists. Uh, but yeah, knocking on doors, asking GPs to to let me prove myself doing a lot of work for free. Wow. To be fair, you know, Yeah. and uh, over the years, thankfully, I've uh, built a lot of trust and um, obviously a lot of experience and as a result in my current practice, um, after many, many years, like to prove myself, they eventually made me the lead pharmacist and, um, and I've got a team of other pharmacists um, who work with me to provide um, quality care to our patients. I'm actually an independent prescriber as well. So obviously I've done a master's and other advanced clinical skills training and, and what Super
0: interesting. So you took the non-traditional route um, to become a lead pharmacist, but the traditional route would be a little bit more training once you've got your pharmacy degree to then um, end up as a lead practice pharmacist, right?
1: Yeah, and, and to, be, to be fair, that route's only been in existence for the last few years, okay. I'd say. So at my time, there probably wasn't that, um, that more structured approach. So I was, I, was, I mean, luckily for me, I'm, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I'm this kind of person who's not scared asking and just knocking on the doors and again um I always had that, that that those patient skills just from like I said I've got many many medics in my family and and the likes and um so I from an early age I was always um getting involved uh, and the rest even if it's That's just a, like pulse check so um a few doctors took a punt on me and they got a lot of free hours out of me as well and I proved that there was a place for pharmacists in that particular setting. And from then I've uh, done further postgraduate qualifications, I've done like uh, my independent prescribing, advanced clinical skills, so to speak. So I'm I'm working more like a, an advanced clinical practitioner level. Uh, and just to forgive me, I can rattle on a lot and you're welcome to stop me any time, Lenny. But from there, uh, my day-to-day, I'd say, is that mix of roles, because now you have a lot of pharmacists working in primary care, but they have a mix of roles depending on. On their training and experience but my day-to-day probably involves the running of clinics mainly managing long-term conditions but also acute clinics um what i'll what i'd say also the bread and butter practice pharmacist work for the likes of conducting audits uh, complex polypharmacy reviews mm-hmm. medicines optimization and the writing and implementation of guidelines and um and obviously that's where my independent prescribing qualification really does come into effect.
0: And excuse my ignorance about that, but would that be very similar to other pharmacists' roles or because you're a lead pharmacist, that's, that's your role is a bit different?
1: Yeah, I mean, what I'd say is a lot of uh, pharmacists in general practice will probably stumble into it and start off with a lot of the medicines optimization work, you know, so um, the likes of um, your uh, implementation guidelines, probably doing some audits, uh, traditionally, you um, they're, they're responsible for a lot of the um, what we call medicines reconciliation. Uh, so if patients are discharged from hospital and to ensure that there is there is um, a continuity of care, yeah. um, as as well as um, probably um, uh, what we'd call sounds sounds it's not ideal, but what we call a lot of the accountancy work, so to speak. You know, so in ensuring that that um, prescribing in the practice is not only um, up to the current guide, most up to date guidelines, but also ef- efficient and cost-effective, so to speak, you know. Um, and there's a lot of, obviously, that medicine information side and supporting the, the other clinicians with, with that time. So, mean, because I mean, personally speaking, I've got a passion for education. I've done that for many, many years, for example.
0: Yeah, and actually, I mean, when I was doing a little bit of research ahead of this podcast, one of the things that um, I saw was that you are passionate about training and education. So tell me what passion projects do you have at the go at the moment?
1: Oh, wow. Um, So yeah, I've been very fortunate. Uh, Again, when I when I came into uh, general practice, uh, to be fair, there wasn't really much uh, in the form of training specifically for primary care that was aimed at pharmacists, so to speak, you know, and um, and when we had that influence of more pharmacists coming into general practice, maybe in uh, 2015 onwards, a lot of my GP colleagues were actually asking me, well, why aren't they working the way you work? And what can we do? Uh, And obviously, uh, I I also have a role of um, educating our medics and other healthcare professionals as well, so to speak. And so I had to remind, uh, and I don't know if we can keep this on record or not, but I had to remind GPs about managing their expectations because I know when a new medic comes into this practice, even if it's a a trained GP, we mentor them, we support them, and we get them working the way they they should. And it was no different to pharmacists who traditionally did not have that pathway. But thankfully, now there are more and more resources and pathways available for them to train so initially I started doing a lot of my education just to upskill other pharmacists and then I got a lot of feedback from my other colleagues the, the nurses the GPs asking why can't they attend too? because and from there I've been doing like I said training for many many years um predominantly like I said in general practice uh, to be completely honest with you um there, there are no subjects I can't I don't really tackle because in, mo- in some way or another we all come across them so to speak you know um, I've got a specialist that just long for the same conditions now.
0: Okay, well, I'm looking forward to you educating us a little bit about the pharmacy's experience in um, cow's milk allergy. Um, so, tell us a little bit about your work with cow's milk allergy patients.
1: Yeah, so, Lydia, um, what I'd say is it's a bit of a strange one because if you ask me how long I've worked in cow's milk allergy, it's, it's very, very difficult because as a pharmacist, anyway, we all touch on cow's milk allergy in some way or another. Everything from my, my community pharmacy colleagues who may uh, support patients in the community uh, uh, with recommendations uh, or, or dealing with those prescription requests from GPs, you know. Um, mm-hmm.
0: And that's both in the community and in a hospital setting as well. Absolutely. Imagine. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and and in a lot of cases, I mean, pharmacists are seen as the medicines experts. So in some in some form or another, you do have to support um, uh not only patients, but also other healthcare professionals, with regards to recommendations as well. You know, uh, from from the from the um, if we're focusing more on what I do day to day, it could be anything from managing patients when when they uh, com- come in with suspected to milk protein allergy, to more of the what I like to do is a lot of the the let's say the unpopular work, but it improves outcomes in the long run. The likes of audits, you know, ensuring correct diagnosis, making sure that the referral pathways are being being uh, followed correctly, making sure that patients are being prescribed um, in line with local guidelines and national guidelines um, and dealing with any safety alerts that may be an issue and, and again, having been able to reassure patients um, in this case, parents uh, most important, because one thing that pharmacists do have that a lot of um, GPs don't and probably other healthcare professionals, we've got sometimes a bit more time to spend with patients and okay. that's something that we find a lot. So of-
0: what would the numbers be in terms of uh, patients you're seeing with calcium or calcium. Wow. And, or even if there's, is there a general change pre-COVID, after COVID? Are you noticing there's an increase? Yeah, no,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely, so, so, you, so the, the system we have in Bury, uh, in my local so the thing we have in my locality in a lot of cases i'd say COVID has definitely affected things but um if i just if i just tell you a bit about Barry, cause the way we work in primary care and, I, and i'm I, i'm certain that um, this happens in a lot of other areas as well it's almost like a referral system so in Barry, we have pathway that involves more the health visitor uh, they will usually work with the family to confirm the diagnosis by supporting um the milk re-challenge for example and great
0: so referral coming in from the health visitor very good. Okay.
1: and the health will will then normally onward refer to a dietitian if needed for support with um for example dairy uh free weaning and later the milk ladder and transition to over-the-counter alternatives to bay milk um let's say at 12 months of age but um in, in what we've not, what I've noticed during COVID, I'm pretty certain the, um, our other colleagues have noticed this too. Is unfortunately we're getting a lot of delay. You know, so I've, i I'm seeing more cases that I presented following a trip to AE, for example. You know, or or maybe patients who've been um, uh, I call them patients, but they're basically children. that have tried other things, maybe have been misdiagnosed previously with the likes of uh, gastroesophageal reflux, for example, or allergies, and then we're seeing them maybe later on in the journey. And uh, I, I and obviously um, I've got no doubt, you know, in your experience, you've, you've probably seen a lot of this, too.
0: Yeah. So if I just go back to the pharmacist's role in the management um, of cosmic allergy, So the referral comes in um, from the health visitor and it comes to you guys as pharmacists before it goes to a dietitian, or do you do an onward referral?
1: No. Well, tr- well, well, traditionally what it should be happening is it would go to them first, you know, but what we what we find um, in a lot of cases is that um things get done the wrong way around so to speak you know so so a patient may present um to a surgery following a trip to a and e for example or a trip to the doctor and they have already in some cases been started on some kind of alternative and then it's and then it's us to as you say to refer onwards if okay
0: and what's what common symptoms are they coming with
1: um so in most cases uh it, it, it depends obviously if it's a more an acute phase so uh, something like a rash or, or uh, is quite common so to speak you know um but uh, or it's a more delayed reaction so in in most cases by the time we see them they have already a suspicion uh, but unfortunately uh, what i have noticed, especially with regards to um COVID has made it harder so we, we've got those if you want those typically what we, what i'd call acute symptoms those rapid onset symptoms like like likes sort of um itching and and um, rashes um so they can be anything and uh, from from skin reactions to um to gastrointestinal reactions so to Mm. speak you know and obviously in extreme cases um obviously there's there's the chance of anaphylaxis with these acute symptoms you know thankfully um rarely see them in in that in that point you know and
0: yeah, and I am um, Ibrahim, I'm very curious to ask: Are there any tools um, or guidance that's used to aid diagnosis that perhaps um, a pharmacist listening to this podcast might be able to use in future?
1: Yeah, I've, I, I mean I've used the cow's milk related symptoms score awareness okay. tool.
0: Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Uh, this, um, depending on symptoms, scores. Uh, a range of if I remember correctly it's 0 to 33 and any okay. score above 12 is chosen as a threshold for identifying children at risk of cow's milk allergy and that the, the symptoms we're talking about is anything from crying to regurgitation to the stools um skin symptoms respiratory symptoms Other respiratory symptoms could be anything slight to severe so to speak you know um and and so that's what i use as a clinician i'd also refer refer my uh, my patients as in the parents um, to to try other tools and um, I mean there are apps that, that I've come across that can be helpful and that's a way of assessing the child's symptoms uh, and uh, if I could if give example for example the crying um, is a scale from naught to six and that's from crying mm-hmm. less than one hour a day to anything uh, more than five hours per day um, and, and that comes in hand in hand with our again it's about I mean for me it's the most important thing is the history so if I'm so if I'm looking at those symptoms have they on, all of a sudden, or have they been there for a bit longer? Have they, is it a delayed reaction? That usually happens within um two to three days after starting for the first time some cacao milk in the in the diet, and that can be anything from um your usual eczema type conditions, and that can be anything from from mild to, to severe. And that's a, a condition we see more and more in children anyway. And that's sometimes what can cause confusion. Two, again, that acid reflux. One thing I've noticed with, with with um with COVID especially is we are seeing patients who've maybe had been treated more with the acid reflux for a while before they've before the decision is actually should we investigate further and decide potentially is there a cow milk protein allergy um, relation relation here.
0: Okay, so there's the diagnosis and you've given us some top, fantastic tools that um, clinicians can use. So then my next question would be, how do you then manage um, cow's milk allergy in patients that you see?
1: I, I think one of the hardest things is reminding um, parents um, that um, to be completely honest, breast is best, you know, yeah, and, and, some, and, and, and sometimes, um, and, and obviously, um, it, it, is a, it is a hard thing because it's about managing expectations as well because obviously you have a you usually have a distressed parents completely understandable wants yeah. their child to to get well and mm-hmm. does not want anything to fault their growth yeah but also you need to you need to look at the evidence and in a lot of cases um with um with cow's milk protein allergy children go out of it um and and that's something to to remind and, and i think it's very important to be able to challenge so to speak you know so trial and challenge and uh, and that, that's one thing that I've uh, found and and a lot of my GPs find quite difficult to be completely honest with you. Um, so you're and,
0: seeing uh, you're seeing the families a, a number of different times and, and are you seeing them face to face or virtually?
1: Uh, throughout COVID it's been predominantly virtual uh, in, in the on the other occasion I, I remember especially at the beginning of the pandemic seeing a patient whose literally just come from A&E quite mm-hmm. distressed and they'd been they' been prescribed um some um some f- formula by the hospital to be complete you um it was probably not managed as well as I would have liked to um because they were probably initially prescribed what I'd call inappropriate and they they weren't really counseled much as a case of sending and and go away with this so to speak and obviously um the um, and that's not always the case obviously you know um but um but maybe they they didn't have the advantage of of speaking to a a pediatrics pediatric dietitian, for example, mm. and whatnot. You know, uh, so, I, so what I've, what I found for definite, one one thing we've we've had, and if I'm talking about what I do in, in in my setting, uh, from the audit perspective, what I find is where we have a lot of children that haven't had maybe that that official diagnosis, and the coding, and that obviously would affect would affect their their management in the long term. You know, so it could be anything uh, from not having that confirmed diagnosis. And not having that confirmed diagnosis recorded on the mm. records, you know, mm. uh, and and then um, potentially um, being prescribed uh, the the wrong type of substitutes, you know, so to speak, you know, or for the long the wrong duration. Uh, what we, what we see very very commonly, and this is probably one where one one area I think pharmacists could really excel in, is inappropriate quantities. In most cases in most cases children not being prescribed enough you know so to speak you know um so what happens obviously in that that case um they 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 usually end up having to run out on a weekend let's say and uh, mom or dad have to somehow um sort um or source some some emergency prescription and that can obviously quite distressing for um for a lot of patients because um because obviously they've, they've got a child to feed and they don't necessarily want anything to affect the child development so to speak um so i think that's quite common but but we also see an issue with um potentially maybe the children not being changed to the correct formula once as they develop you know mm-hmm. and then and then also um challenging well actually okay you've been on this for 12 months mm. is it time now to look at seeing how you get on
0: so if we break that down a little bit, so you've mentioned two um, areas where pharmacists could do some more. And the first one I think you mentioned was uh, prescribing enough of the feed, yeah? Um, and how do they get that right in the future?
1: Absolutely, and, 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 that's, and, that's, and that's where the pathways are very, very important. You know? okay. So, um, and I mean, we, we, although we've changed IT systems to be fair, in my practice, we actually have a clear pathway and a protocol for any clinician to, to follow with regard to what you're doing up to the age of let's say six months and then what you're giving from six months onwards and the point that okay challenge at each point you know so to speak you know mm-hmm. uh, but as as you know in a busy clinical setting unfortunately we don't always follow these um, pathways yeah, the
0: pathways yeah
1: and I think there's something also important to to highlight linear is as a pharmacist when I'm reviewing a patient from the medication perspective i'm very keen to see compliance and we do see a lot of cases where maybe there is a lack of compliance um, and that could be a number of a number of things anything from maybe uh, the actual formula not agreeing with the child initially but um but um, um you know but maybe the parent has not approached surgery to update them so to speak you know or or maybe the parent has already tried tried challenging and realized actually no there is no issue here and the child does not need it so to speak you know but um, and that's where i think i suppose it's important to ensure again protocols are rigid and you're constantly reviewing your patients you know
0: absolutely the the importance of follow-ups um absolutely yeah and is it something that think you think pharmacists could do more of in terms of following the patient up a little
1: Uh, bit more oh yeah I, I, i think it's important with any type of um condition to have that multidisciplinary team approach yeah and, and and that's and and um in th- this is no no difference uh however i do i do find that um follow-up is probably sometimes something that that gets forgotten so to speak you know um i do, I do also try to recommend tools to help parents you know and and they in, even in the form of apps so that they can almost track their baby's symptoms you know and feeds you know because because at the end of the day, um, we can do everything, but it's really that that history that is the most effective way of um, of reviewing patients, and because we also need to look out for potential alternative diagnoses. Have we actually got things wrong? You know.
0: Yeah, no, totally. So you mentioned um, the importance of a multidisciplinary team. So I mean, I guess. How uh, do you successfully work with, say, other pharmacists or dietitians, uh, paediatricians, or GPs, or even health visitors to make sure that we have that seamless transition of um, of patients moving from one professional to the next?
1: What i'd say linear is it can always be better you know okay. um how can however, we make it better commu- communication though <laughs> communication is key okay. is that's what i would say you know and it's about forming those relations i i i'm not a big fan of the the terms primary care or secondary care i think it should just be care so care, to speak, you know? yeah so yeah. so 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 in that initial with that when we get that initial let's say discharge if, if they come by the hospital setting it's about you know um first of all check in diagnosis yeah. is correct you know uh, checking that there is a plan you know mm. in place you know if required speaking to pediatrics and the specialists they may have seen and then forming those relationships with your healthcare workers your health visitors so to speak your local dietitians uh, because to be fair that is a huge amount of wealth of, in, of information there and, totally. and it's about almost sharing that journey um ensuring that uh, from the perspective of, of the, the parents, they're aware that, that it's almost like an open door policy, you know, if they have any queries, uh, not to sit on them. But they can communicate because um, although a lot of them will have their health visitor, sometimes they do need to communicate directly with with the practice, so to speak. You know, uh, we particularly particularly see it when we have issues with regards to um, supply issues, particular formula or anything like um, recalls and whatnot, so to speak. And um, and that's it's about ensuring that there is that seamless care and communication is the is the biggest is factor. Key, that's yeah. Communication communication between parents communication between Every member of that multidisciplinary team.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. One question I didn't ask that I wanted to ask earlier was about referring on when do you refer on?
1: Um, yeah, growing um, I mean in most cases, uh, symptoms is one thing, you know, so if we've got a query with regards to diagnosis for definite, you know, um, if we find that there is a, a situation where um I find let's 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 say uh, a parent has trial trialed multiple options with no with no success Um, for definite if we have concerns of uh, with regards to the the child's developments they're not they're not gaining weight and whatnot so to speak they they they, um, that is something I would I would definitely look to referring on and in in most cases one thing I'd say the pandemic has a positive about the pandemic believe it or not is the ability to have your MDT is almost virtually it's very similar yeah. to, I mean when I, when I look at this linear your your dietitian I'm, I'm a pharmacist is a perfect example so to yeah, speak being absolutely. able to um, have that quick chat on the phone is fine but also um, ver- various platforms have given us the ability to actually discuss cases I would do it with other long-term conditions this is no no different and mm-hmm. actually it it first of all it reduces inappropriate referrals because yeah. I've got no doubt my community teams um, especially my dietitians and my p- pediatrics and Uh, they've got a big enough list as it is especially as a result of the pandemic you know and in a lot of cases when I speak to my colleagues their biggest frustration is maybe seeing patients that probably could be managed better by us in primary care and and it's not that we don't want to but sometimes it's just a case of confidence and competence you know so being able to discuss those cases and if it's case of just checking that you're on the right lines or seeing how we could do better you know or getting that quick answer is is golden so to speak you know so um MDT um, virtual uh, reviews uh, with, with the MDT team, I think is very good. I mean, we don't, we don't have the issue now of trying to find parking and trying to plan <laughs> our day around them, so to speak. So, exactly. definitely. Uh, and the
0: impact that that has in terms of you know, reduced hospital admissions, I'm sure, but also more importantly, just the impact on parents and families, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and, and one th- uh, with regards to impact on parents and families, it's about reducing the wait, because although obviously with children, even throughout the pandemic, they're a priority. So we don't like to keep them waiting long. However, if if someone is waiting to see a specialist and they've already got a, a bit of a list, so to speak, to get through, there is going to be a delay. So it's about reducing that delay and reassuring the parents that, you know, they are a priority and and most important, obviously, ensuring that the child is getting the best treatment possible in the quickest time possible.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And have you had any success stories in terms of su- successfully managing calcium allergies
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, to, to be fair, I, I I've been fortunate a few cases where, in most cases, it's dealing with the distressed patient follow, follow sorry the distressed parent, I should say, following that initial visit so to speak you know um that has been um th- that's always nice to see because uh, the number of times let's say on a friday night so as in like just before we close just before the weekend a parent is coming up to the weekend and either they've run out of their formula and they need a emergency prescription so to speak um uh, or they've just been seen by an a and they've been sent with discharge and they, they're not sure what to do next so to speak you know but it's also it's also imparting advice so for example um uh, we, we mentioned breast is best, to be completely honest, with you, and, and there's no 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 doubt about that. But even something as simple as counselling mums about, you know, okay, if they're going to try that um, avoiding, you probably need to stop drinking milk yourselves, so to yeah. speak, you know, and, and also ensuring that they've been prescribed the, the appropriate calcium and vitamin D supplementation, so to Absolutely. speak. Because you know? yeah. um, obviously my experience, and I've got no doubts in, in your experience, because you probably see a lot more of this than I do, in most cases, when I see um, children that have maybe fails this, it's usually because mum is still drinking milk. Yeah, and, and that's where the breastfeeding usually fails. I, could, I, I mean, I'm happy to be corrected, but that's what, what I've noticed.
0: So, yeah, taking a more 360 look into how we're managing it as well. Um, yeah, no, I mean, Ibrahim, I've absolutely loved our conversation. It's really opened my mind and my understanding of what pharmacists uh, do, and particularly in the in management of cow's milk um, allergies. So thank you. Um, At the end of each podcast, um, I ask guests to leave a key message. And so today we've been talking about um, cow's milk allergy management, and you've given us a fantastic pharmacist perspective. So what would your three top tips be for your colleagues or other people within the multidisciplinary team?
1: Wow. (laughs) Um, So what I I mean, what, what what I'd say is constantly review what you're doing, and that's everything from confirming diagnosis, you know, um and um looking for the likes of um evidence for poor compliance or evidence for need to to refer on um and ensuring that there is a plan in place Uh, i'm also pulling if i'm talking to any healthcare professional but especially the pharmacists here don't be afraid to try supporting your gps and your patients with calves milk protein allergy because there is there is a place for you and um it's about improving that that patient journey um, and most important, constantly monitor and review.
0: Brilliant tips. Thank you so much for your time, Ibrahim. It's been a fantastic conversation.
1: Likewise, thank you very much, Linnea, for, for, for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Medical Nutrition. If you enjoyed the podcast and found the content useful, please share it with your colleagues and consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. For more information on this topic or to share your feedback, please visit the Nestle Health Science N Plus Hub or click on the link in the show notes.